This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, DOD depends on getting ahead on emerging technologies. We'll discuss the path forward on those critical areas. Then, the federal government is struggling to recruit young talent, and a new report shows that those that do go into public service are leaving at higher rates. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. The Pentagon is focused on developing the technology of the future and getting it into the hands of the warfighter. Barbara McQuiston is the DOD's Deputy Chief Technology Officer for Science and Technology. Barbara, welcome to the program. Thank you. So let's first by explaining your role uh, within the Office of the Undersecretary for Research and Engineering. Yes, I'm the Deputy Chief Technology Officer and I work for Heidi Hsu, who's the Undersecretary for Research and Engineering. Uh, we have the responsibility as the Chief Technology Officer to work with the Secretary of Defense and support the Department of Defense in all the areas of research, technology, and modernization, and moving, moving a lot of initiatives forward. My role in science and technology is really to look at the early stage research. So I, I look at that as the foundational investments that need to be made. So we work with basic research office, universities, federally funded research and development centers, FFRDCs, um, and our university affiliated research teams to create the core uh, work that needs to be done in the foundation of science to move that forward for the Department of Defense and for the nation. We also work in the area of what I call futures, which is being able to take opportunities within the scientific areas of discovery and move them into emergent technologies. But when I say you move them into emerging technologies, we're not only talking about maturing that technology and working uh, with opportunities with the DOD labs and across the board on where those emergent technologies can be uh, discovered and made, but also being able to develop the manufacturing base for that. It's very important to have that uh, because when you really talk about making frontier discoveries like DARPA does. DARPA is part of research and engineering. And you know, we look at that frontier, you still have to be able not only to do something, but to be able to look at it relative to DOD needs and requirements, but also be able to manufacture that. I do want to talk to you about manufacturing because as you say, it is very important, but I want to talk about your, your role in overseeing um, what, what's called the four seeds of emerging uh, opportunities. So let's start with um, the first one, which is biotechnology. What's the focus? What's the goal? We have 14 critical technology areas that uh, Heidi Hsu has identified as being critical to the Department of Defense to move forward. Four of those are in my area of science and technology, and they include biotechnology, quantum science, advanced materials, and what we call future G. In biotechnology, that is a critical move forward for the DOD. There's a number of things when people, when you say biotechnology, people sometimes think about just the medical or the pharmaceutical side, but there is an entire industrial base that's moving forward, and a lot of it is moving forward in the commercial realm, but their products and, and capabilities that really 
change the, the structure for DOD. Uh, one of the things that I can point to in the biotechnology and the manufacturing side has been the ability that DARPA again pushed forward to literally grow a runway. They grew a runway in Guam in 48 hours that's still in use, a helipad that's still in use today. Grew it out of what? <laughs> Sand and some bacteria and being able to grow that platform. So when you think about biotechnology and the capabilities, you think of a couple of things. You think of being able to make new materials and, and utilize uh, biological models, synthetic biology or biology itself. We, we do that producing uh, pharmaceuticals, but we can produce so many more materials along those lines as well. Uh, polymers, uh, we can use uh, biomaterials that have certain qualities to be coatings on things for uh, DOD purposes, but we can also manufacture in a very different way. We can scale up the technology like we do, uh, like you would think of in pharmaceuticals, or you can scale it out so that you can have materials and capabilities on demand wherever you are. What about quantum computing? Where are we with that technology? Quantum compu computing is, on uh, the quantum sciences area, it's very broad. So there are emergent technologies within quantum science, and they include uh, uh, things such as chip scale atomic clocks, and that's the ability to keep timing in the network and keep timing to be extremely accurate. There are quantum sensors that are moving ahead. There are also quantum science uh, opportunities in photonics for computing and network science. Um, this is a very early stage um, technology. There's a lot of uh, companies sort of starting to come along on the commercial side uh, using qubits for computing. Um, but there's a lot of basic science and discovery that's going on. So quantum science is quite broad, but being able to take advantage of breakthroughs that happen in quantum science and network commuting, computing and being able to utilize those in emergent technologies is going to be very important to be able to manage. And what about advanced materials that you mentioned before? What, what kind of advanced materials is DOD interested in? Oh, advanced materials are key. Um, it's, materials are part of everything we do. So creating new high temperature materials, creating uh, materials that have uh, higher sustainability or can outperform uh, uh, functions that we need for DOD. But in the science side for advanced materials, the ability to have AI, nanotechnology, and material science move forward, but also move forward at a rate that we can quickly adopt it and put it into military systems is going to be very important as we move forward. And the last of the four is Future G, which is a wireless technology. Yes. yes. Future G, 5G is sort of laid down the foundation that we have for communication. Future G is now that that foundation is there, we can do a lot more capability relative to the spectrum and also relative to both uh, communications and computations at the edge. So being able to move that technology forward is going to be critical. All right, we'll take a quick pause here and then we'll come back and continue. Great. We'll continue our conversation with DOD's Deputy Chief Technology Officer for Science and Technology, Barbara McQuiston. On the other side of the break, we'll be right back. We're back with Barbara McQuiston. She's the DOD's Deputy Chief Technology Officer for Science and Technology. 
Barbara, we were talking about manufacturing earlier, and there are hubs all over the country that are um, improving manufacturing capabilities in this country. It's part of the Manufacturing Innovation Institutes. Tell us about that. Well, I'm lucky enough to have nine manufacturing innovation institutes uh, within the science and technology area at DOD. It's critical for us, as I was uh, describing earlier, being able to take emergent technology and manufacture it. It's one thing to show its use, prototype it. It's another thing to be able to manufacture it at scale. There are many challenges in doing that. Luckily, the Manufacturing Innovation Institutes, we have nine of them centered on very specific areas of manufacturing, uh, such as additive manufacturing, robotics, um, flexible electronics. Um, these, are idea these are areas that are key to manufacturing the critical technologies that we need. But there are manufacturing challenges as we automate things. We have, again, the biotechnology side. We have two manufacturing innovation institutes. One is biofab and the medical side and biomade in the material side. Um, so what they bring to us is uh, they are a public-private partnership where they create an ecosystem. They're tied to universities, startup companies, large companies, and we provide challenge problems for them in the manufacturing area that can be worked on and embedded directly into the industrial base for DOD. A lot of these areas of challenge areas in manufacturing have dual use uh, capability as well. When we look at robotics, we're talking about sometimes advancing the collaborative use of robotics in a depot for airplane repair. But this can also go across uh, uh, non-DOD sources as well. So the ability to sort of be agile, be able to put things in the industry, get this capability out there. They are also extremely important in being able to develop workforce because along with things like additive manufacturing, there's a lot of new techniques, new technology and ability that uh, we're developing at the same time. So we can quickly take the knowledge and the capabilities and the education that we have for the workforce and develop that education and certification side and work with community colleges and, and be able to leverage that across the industrial base. Your office also collaborates with FFRDCs. Absolutely. So explain what those are and what, what benefit do they bring to um, research and engineering efforts in the DOD? We have uh, within my office all of the federal, the FFRDCs for DOD of the federally funded uh, research centers, they really work on uh, uh, nonprofit companies that work on what I would call government mission, government capability areas. There's a lot of challenges when we look across the board in, in cyber, in communications, uh, and in many of the things that DOD cares about in AI. And oftentimes, a lot of the capability that we need to develop and work and support that we need as a government agency also is relative across a lot of the government agencies. So FFRDCs are those institutes that really leverage what we need to do and can advance our own mission within the DOD by having that uh, core capability in scientists, researchers, and uh, experience, as well as a lot of connectivity 
to not only university-affiliated research centers, but the universities at large, and being able to work also with the commercial industry and, and evaluate and, and use technology that is for a specific government purpose. You know, I want to ask you about small businesses. It's, it's been an ongoing priority for the Defense Department to bring in the innovation that exists in small businesses. But a lot of them don't have the resources, frankly, the time to get through DOD's acquisition process to get funding. Tell me about what you're doing in, in that area and also transferring that innovation all the way down to the warfighter. Well, uh, let me tell you, small businesses are the engine of innovation for this country. And we need to support them and, and, and be able to use that strength that we have as a nation to look into building the future. And this is not only for national security, but economic security. So we have to be collaborative and we have to have partnerships that are able to work with small business, encourage small business, and invest small business into the DOD mission. And that's oftentimes very challenging. We need to provide them the tools so that they can uh, have the security that they need for their own work and for the work that uh, is done within DOD. But small businesses uh, oftentimes uh, don't have the uh, experience or the uh, ability to work with a large DOD entity so the SBIR program has been an excellent way to have a small business sort of graduate into uh, working with the DOD and on DOD challenges, and also being able to understand what innovative technology the small businesses bring to us. So we need to do more to have it more agile to be able to work with small business, to bring their innovative technology into our industrial base, and to look at those opportunities where we can uh, experiment and test and evaluate prototypes and then be able to have the acquisition of the technology within the DOD system. Finally, Barbara, what does the future hold for DOD's S&T efforts? What are you most excited about? Oh, I am most excited about being able to take advantage of the dual-use technology that this nation has. Um, when I look at all the ideas that are happening, I, good ideas in science is being done everywhere. And right now, we're at a point in time when we look at all of these collaborations through FFRDCs and UARCs, small businesses, that we can actually take advantage of these breakthroughs, not only for the warfighter, but for our nation and move them forward. There are so many incredible things going on right now that actually will be uh, uh, so important for this nation moving forward. And now is the time that we, as a DOD and as a nation, can be able to move these things forward strategically. You have the CHIPS Act, you have other areas of investment that are going on now in science and technology that will really transform our future in a positive way for us and also be very important in making our nation secure. All right, Barbara, thanks so much. Nice to talk Thank to you. Thank you very much. Coming up on Government Matters, new young federal talent is less likely to stick around. Straight ahead, we'll discuss the reasons they're choosing to leave federal service. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. A recent report from the Partnership for Public Service found that federal employees under the age of 30 are quitting at a higher rate than their older counterparts. Oma Sadiq is a reporter for Insider. She recently wrote an article on the findings. Oma, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. 
So what is the rate of young people quitting and, and how does that compare to the private sector? Right, so the rate of young people quitting is 8.5%. And while that necessarily isn't a large number by itself compared to the private sector, that represents around 11,000 people, it is a big number when you compare it to their older counterparts in the federal workforce. So those aged 30 to 59 who are hovering around this at an average rate of 4%. So it's double that rate. And it's also significant because it's higher than the overall government-wide attrition rate, so the rate at which people are leaving, which is around an average of 6%. Um, and so while this is not necessarily a cause for alarm, we're not seeing the federal government have uh, a level of crisis or experiencing this so-called great resignation that has really you know, affected um, so many industries over these past two years during the pandemic. It is important because why are these people under the age of 30 uh, leaving at higher rates than their older counterparts. That, that's what I was going to ask you. What's the reason? Why are they leaving? Right. So we've seen many reasons as to why young people have been leaving their jobs these past couple of years. They're looking for better opportunities. They want higher pay. They want uh, the opportunity to have remote work. They want a better work-life balance. They want a, a pathway to promotion. And so um, for, the, for the federal government particularly, uh, one reason could be low pay. There was another report uh, published by the, the Partnership for Public Service, which surveyed job satisfaction. And while young people, particularly this cohort under the age of 30, are generally satisfied at their job, they reported uh, high levels of, of satisfaction at their job, one of their top concerns was low pay. So that could be driving a lot of this turnover. Uh, another reason particularly because they're at this early stage of their career, they could be just going back to school. You know, they could be going back to get another degree and they may eventually return to the federal workforce. But overall, it is hard to retain young talent. It is hard to bring young people into to work for the federal government in the first place. So it definitely sends a signal to these federal government agency leaders, to these managers, bosses, you know, to start paying attention to this, to this young group. So, Oma, there, there was discussion in the report about the impact of the pandemic and young people that were new hires during that time. What did they find? So it's difficult for young people to be, you know, most of them maybe at, um, earlier in their career, age 22, fresh out of college, who had already gone through the remote uh, remote college experience now shifting to maybe a remote uh, federal government experience. And it's costly. The, 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 the process of onboarding, the process of uh, bringing new hires on, the training that it takes, all of this costs a lot of money and a lot of time. So it, so it's you know kind of imperative to maybe retain these talent for a little while so that they may not have to re -go, go through this process all over again with another group of young people. It's, it was also very difficult to find mentors uh, when everybody's remote and, and to really connect with people. That's gotta be mm -hmm. difficult for a young person. Right. I mean, just sitting behind the screen all day is not necessarily going to form the same connection you would as having someone there with you in person uh, to guide you and to show you the ropes. Uma, if, if, as you say, you know, young people were dissatisfied with the pay, isn't, isn't there a proposal to increase their pay? I mean, it seems like an obvious solution. Right. I mean, it is it is one solution. Uh, another solution could just be to really just 
analyze what's going on with these young people and see if there's other opportunities to help them out. Maybe they want to come into the office more. Maybe they want to have a permanent remote work schedule. Maybe they want to have more travel opportunities through their job. Um, maybe they want to have a direct pathway to uh, get a raise, to get that promotion, to move up in their career. Um, so there are plenty of uh, things that uh, bosses can be looking at. The most important message here is that they should be paying attention to this young cohort. Because another thing I want to mention is that the only uh, age group that had a higher rate of leaving were people over the age of 59. And so that's largely attributed to retirement. So a lot of people retire each year. That's inevitable. That's natural. And that's typically the largest group of people that are leaving the federal workforce each year. So young people having a solid group of young people in the federal workforce can help fill that gap that comes at the end of each year when people are retiring. So to have a strong workforce will alleviate the, the federal government's uh, uh, job in that way. And finally, Oma, did the findings signal any long-term trends that we should be watching for? Right. So as I mentioned before, it's not a, a level of a crisis, right? 8.5%. It is not necessarily a large number by itself. Uh, it's only two percentage points above that government-wide uh, rate. Uh, but it is something to, to be uh, keeping in mind. And uh, we could see, if, 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 if it's not addressed, we could see potentially down the road this um, this uh, so-called great resignation affect the, the federal government workforce. But for now, for now, it doesn't seem so. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye on it. And I want to thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you for having me. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. You can reach us on Twitter at GovMattersTV. Follow us to get the latest updates, reminders, and links to our latest interviews. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people, in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite 
connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's going to be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.